This is the Spiritual Exercises Podcast. I'm Rachel Amaday. Thank you for being here and for listening. I am excited this week to be completing a reading of chapter 12 in my book. Why am I doing this? Um, Well, it's because we need to talk about Paul. We need to talk about our misinterpretations of Paul. We need to understand where we have... uh, used Paul to make up new doctrines without testimony from anywhere else in scripture and to understand what an egregious mistake that is, but also to begin to understand Paul better so that when we read Paul, we read with the complete context of what's going on in his time frame. Why is he saying these things? Why is he talking to people about these issues? And so I'm doing kind of a read through through my book. Um, it's funny, last week I mentioned that, um, and not my whole book, just this one chapter, because I think I explain a lot of it pretty well in this chapter. But last week, uh, I think there was a part of my book where I was talking about the verses in Matthew where Jesus meets this group of people who believe that they know him because they've done miracles in his name. I mean, miracles. They've cast out demons. They've done incredible things in his name. And he says, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness, basically. He says, I don't know you. And the word there, no matter which translation you have, the root word goes back to lawlessness, which means Torahlessness. You don't have the Lord's Torah. And so you're not in relationship with him because we know that relationship with the Lord, not salvation, but relationship with the Lord is based on on a foundation of obedience, that to love the Lord is to obey his commands according to scripture. And so we have a big problem here. I think in my book, I say something like there's no place in the kingdom for these people who are confused about who they are. Uh, and their relationship with the Lord. However, in I've been doing months of study now on the concept of hell and the afterlife in the Bible. And I have to tell you, there are a lot more locations, I think, in the end, not only uh, during the millennial reign, but in the very end, after the final great white throne judgment, I think there are things happening that we have, again, misinterpreted and don't really understand what scripture is saying about these places. And so, I want to throw a caveat in here. Just because you are not the bride of Christ may be necessarily in the end of all things, or just because some people um, may not be in Jerusalem at the end of all things does not mean that they are burning in a torture chamber. That is not what scripture describes. That's not what's happening. And so I'm excited to clarify that and to do a study with you all, because I do think we need to start studying these things as a community and be careful. One conviction that I've been having in that process is recognizing that many believers would throw other people, would throw souls into hell far before the Lord God Almighty would. And who are we to think that we have the right to be that judgmental and to sit on a high horse and tell people where their soul is heading when God even 
isn't going to be doing that. God is going to be judging based on their lives and their consciences and how they lived. And they're not going to be thrown into a place where Satan has control over their soul. That is not a place that exists. That's not going to exist for eternity. Remember, Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire. But anyways, we're going to go into all of that because we have very wrong-headed ideas about the afterlife. And we say things that just aren't true all the time, all the time. And, and there are some areas we just don't know. There are gray areas, obviously, for a reason. I don't think that God obsesses about the afterlife to us in the word because we're supposed to be focused on this life because it greatly matters what you do in this life. And the Bible does say that. It does matter how you behave. It's not going to save you, but it absolutely matters to your position in the kingdom, to the treasures in the kingdom, to where you get to be, who you get to sit next to in the kingdom. And then whether or not you are in the, I mean, anyways, we're going to get into all of that. Okay. And I'm going to show you the Bible verses. We're going to talk about the language. It's going to be awesome. But before I get into any new Bible studies and have some guests on that I have already been lining up, which I'm very excited about, I wanted to get you guys just thinking about our interpretations of the books that Paul wrote. And so if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, Bible podcast, I would recommend you go back and listen because I did the first half of the chapter last week. I'm going to do this the back half here this week and um, hopefully, hopefully I can get to all of it. If, you, if you'd like to pick up my book, what's interesting is I've written 12 chapters that all are kind of standalone essays, each on a different topic and different topics from the perspective of all the things that I've been learning over the last decade that are different and unique from what you would learn in a regular traditional Christian congregation, Western Christianity kind of setting. So um, you might want to pick up my book if you haven't yet and take a read through of these things, but Here we are. We're in the middle of chapter 12. Let's finish this out. He tells us quite plainly that he will judge relationship with believers according to their works judged by the law. You cannot earn salvation with your works, but if you are unwilling to submit your works to Yeshua, you are not in relationship with him. You are not in him. You don't know him according to John 1, verse 12. At the very end of time as we know it, the law is still standing, still useful, still a part of the believer's walk with God. This is according to our rabbi, the one who died, the one with the power to open the scrolls of heaven, the Lamb, the Almighty, the Creator, the King. Yet these principles Yeshua gives us are out of alignment with modern doctrines of Paul. We now have Paul pitted against Moses, David, and Yeshua. Not a good matchup. Luckily, Paul is not the problem. The real matchup exists in Moses, David, Yeshua, and Paul versus modern Christian doctrine. I'm going to stop here, guys, give you some reference. Again, if you didn't listen to last week's, this isn't going to make any sense. You need to go back and listen to it. But again, we're talking about that passage from Matthew 7, where he says, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, so this is giving context to that. I will continue. Romans 7 verse 12, the law is indeed holy and the commandments holy and righteous and good. Romans 3.31 says this, are we then abolishing law through faith? May it never be. Rather, we are establishing law, end quote. Paul seems to take every opportunity to confuse us, but think about the time period of Paul. 
There was a rise in Greek and Roman god worship and a correlated rise in the number of their gods. All manner of religious ceremony and belief confused the message of this additional god, Yeshua. Some of the Jews were skeptical of Paul's message. Desiring not to mix with the pagan religions of the day, they put up theological roadblocks to Paul. We benefit from those roadblocks as we read the debates today in Scripture and see how Paul was successful at convincing many of the most stubborn Jews to understand that Yeshua is the Messiah. Circumcision became perhaps the great debate, as circumcision was political for the Romans and a difficult hurdle to cross for Gentiles coming into the faith. More on this later. Not to mention, Paul had to help people understand what exactly Yeshua accomplished. So, when we get to a chapter like Romans 7, boy, do we have a lot to wade through. I'm going to use this chapter as an example for you. Read it alone first, then come back, and if you think you understand it perfectly, you can move on. But if you have some questions, great. So did I. Let's discuss. In Deuteronomy 25, the Torah discusses the opportunity for a woman to remarry after the death of her husband. We see examples of this taking place in the lives of Ruth and Tamar. The Bible allowed for marriage after the loss of a spouse. Here, Paul talks about this. Why? He is teaching one aspect of what Yeshua did on the cross. The nation of Israel had a covenant with the Lord until they cheated on him with other gods to the extent that he gave them a divorce decree, specifically the ten tribes of Israel that are referenced in Jeremiah 3. And I quote, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adultery. After after this decree, God could not, according to his own law, remarry Israel, from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and I quote, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes his wife, the wife, sorry, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord, end quote. So how could the bride of Christ be released from the law of marriage in Deuteronomy 24? The only way for reunification was through death. We are Israel, divorced from God. In order to remarry, our husband had to die. This released us to be married anew to a risen Yeshua, the perfect Savior who had become man. And of course, this is what Yeshua did. He died and rose again. Paul explains this through verse 6. And not only did Yeshua die, but we die to our old nature, our old selves, when we unite with Yeshua. We are also made new, a shining bride for the groom. We die to the divorce we were bound to, where we were married to our idolatry and sin because of our wandering. In dying with Christ, we are now no longer bound to that life of death. Yeshua's death filled the law of God full of meaning in more ways than one. It even allowed us to follow the law of marriage perfectly praise Yahweh. So until these deaths took place, that divorce cut us off from unity with God. Before Yeshua, we were an adulterous people. Without Yeshua, the law is outside of us, and we cannot be unified with it the the way Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. In Yeshua, we are made like him, as he is the Torah, and we are able to produce fruit from this position. 
We are released from the first marriage that resulted in divorce, the one that held us captive to our adultery and kept us separated from Yeshua. We are released from the law that made us adulterers if we attempted reunification with Yeshua. We serve now not from the flesh or stone tablets, but from the spirit where God's law is written in our hearts. The old way of relationship was law-abiding by stone tablets. The new way is law-abiding through God's spirit within us. Now on to verses 7 through 25, and we are still talking about what Paul uh, wrote in Romans 7 here. The only way sin can condemn us is if there is a law that exists to define sin. Through that law, we can be condemned. Without the definition of that law, judgment cannot exist. It's actually the point I made earlier. The cross is confusing if there is nothing that reveals our separation from God. But the law does reveal our iniquities, our inadequacies, and the great chasm between God and our fallen nature. Because we know the law, we are bombarded with every opportunity to understand our separation from it. We are in a state of continual awe at how often we violate its principles. I liken it to the moment you realize sugar is bad for you and that it is in practically every product you buy. I often cringe as I read the labels on crackers and salad dressing at the grocery store, hoping sugar isn't an ingredient. But there it is, all the time, killing my hopes and dreams that some pre-made product might actually leave off the extra toxic calories. At times, it feels like a terrible violation. At times, disappointment. At times, frustration. But now that I know, I don't buy the darn things as often. They're dead to me now, just like my hopes and dreams for sweet snacks without the consequences. If I didn't read the label, I suppose I'd be blissfully ignorant. Still, I would violate my body with sugar excesses more often. But I wouldn't have the faintest clue why I felt so tired every day, or why my workouts were a bit lackluster. But the knowing has made me healthier. It is not the knowing about sugar that is dead to me, nor is it bad. It is the part of me that was free to eat it all the time that has died. The sobering, serious reality has made me healthier, but perhaps slightly more cautious and less prone to reckless abandon with my eating habits. The labels and my knowledge of the ingredients have been a wonderful good that has helped me recognize the toxic from the nutritious. Now, perhaps this isn't a perfect example, but I strongly believe this is close to Paul's utterly devastatingly confusing argument in chapter 7, and it does make sense this way, doesn't it? Through the end of the chapter, using our example, we could say that there is one part of us that wants to be completely healthy, always treating our bodies with decency and demanding that our palates behave. And then, there is a part of us that just wants a bowl of ice cream that tastes the way it did when we were children— Of course, eating sugar in and of itself is not a sin. My example is lighthearted compared to the wreckage our sinful nature can cause us. The reality is that our inner struggles are far more like war. Knowledge of the law of God increases our understanding of the battleground. With no knowledge, we do little fighting because we do not see when we are in enemy territory. We have no boundaries. With much knowledge, the boundaries are clearly defined, and sometimes it's quite a struggle to stay within the boundaries of God versus the ones of the world. Yet, those boundaries keep us from the arrows of the enemy. Paul ends the chapter by saying that the spirit-led part of him is subservient to God's law, but his Adamic nature serves the law of sin. The war is real. This is not inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, yet if you do not understand the marital laws of Deuteronomy, or the separate law of sin, etc., you may find yourself believing Paul is battling with God's laws here in Romans 7. 
You may think the law of God oppresses you or that its ability to produce increased knowledge that leads to guilt is a net negative. You may find yourself in the American church doctrine of Paul, which is inconsistent with itself and the rest of scripture. Like it is with sugar, knowledge of sin is not oppressive. In the long run, it is freeing. It produces health and life if we abide in that knowledge. If we do not, it produces guilt alongside the opposite of health and life. The law and knowledge of it is not the problem. Our lack of obedience to it is the problem. I suppose we can thank Paul for the mental workouts. No matter what, my encouragement to you is to tread carefully. If you find what seems an inconsistency between Paul and the rest of Scripture, dig deeper. 5. Paul discusses seven different laws. As you read Paul's letters, you will come across different laws. Many conflate or package all the laws Paul is talking about into God's law. This is a mistake, and it is due to lack of context, which we will discuss later. Let's go over all the laws Paul discusses. The law of God in Romans 7:22 through 25. This is equated with Torah. And I quote, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my member another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. End quote. The law of sin, Romans 7.23, and I quote, Captive to the law of sin. End quote. This law reveals that breaking God's law equals sin. The law of sin and death in Romans 8.2 I quote, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, end quote. This law states that sin produces death. The law of the spirit of life in Romans 8, verse 2. See above verse. This law seems to be that Yeshua can, Yeshua's work can set you free from the law of sin and death. By living according to the spirit, we are set free from the death of living according to the flesh. The law of faith found in Romans 3, verses 27. And I quote, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. End quote. We are justified by faith, not by works. We are given salvation through faith in Yeshua, not through our own doing. The law of righteousness in Romans 9. I quote, But Israel that pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. End quote. And the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 21. I quote, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. This is essentially the law of God as well. I'm grateful to 119 Ministries for first pointing these out to me. I find that it is incredibly helpful to determine which law Paul is discussing when he uses that term. A good way to describe the intersection interaction of these laws is given by 119ministries.com from Pauline Paradox Transcript 4. I quote here, The law of God is our instruction from Yahweh. Our flesh desires to ignore these instructions. This is defined as the law of sin. Sin leads to death. We have all sinned. We all deserved death. This is known as the law of sin and death. While we are under the law of sin and death, we are unknowingly in bondage and trapped in the promise of eternal death. The Spirit speaks truth to us and points us to the everlasting life of the Word of God. In this, we realize that we are in bondage in the law of sin and death. We realize that we must have faith in the Word of God by trusting and fully committing to the Word of God. This is a desire to follow the Word of God, characterized by a new desire that is contrary to the flesh, that is against the Word of God. 
In this faith, we practice righteousness. The righteousness is the same righteousness of our Messiah that he walked out in faith. This is known as the law of Christ. End quote. For some reason, this explanation reminds me of the heavily debated movie, The Matrix. Depending on which pill you take, you either choose the awakening of the Holy Spirit or the continuation of ignorant existence that is, in reality, death. The Holy Spirit is the new and improved operating system, freeing you from the matrix, or the law of sin and death. With the new operating system of Yeshua, you are able to divide scripture more rightly, living in more obedience and seeing the world as God sees it. It's not a perfect comparison by any means, but hopefully it is helpful. When reading Paul, make sure you know what law he is talking about. It may not actually be the Torah. Number six, context dictates meaning. Romans 6 verses 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace, end quote. All on its own, this is quite a dangerous verse. Without context, here is what I use to take from it. Sin has no dominion over anyone in Christ, so we shouldn't be sinning anymore. Two, I don't have to worry about the law anymore. I now live in grace. Three, grace saved me from God's laws. (laughs) However, if we put it into context with the sections before and after, let's see what happens. Right from the top, Romans 6 declares that we are not to continue in sin so that grace may abound. Paul clarifies that in being united to Yeshua in death, we are united with him in resurrection, meaning our old self or Adamic nature was crucified. It is gone. This creates a situation where we have traded enslavement to sin for a life lived for God. From Romans 6, 12 through 14, it says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." End quote. Paul goes on in this manner until the famed verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it not the case that this entire section describes the position of being under the law of sin and death and transferred through the law of the spirit of life to becoming slaves to the law of God? Is he not stating that you will be obedient to one or the other, either obedient to sin or obedient to God? If you don't choose God, You are enslaved to the law of sin and death, but through the grace of God, and I quote, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, end quote. The question must always be, which law, Paul? Which one are you talking about? The answer can be found in the context. In this case, I believe he means under the law of sin and death. You will find the same dichotomous discussion in Romans 5, before this, where Paul compares death in Adam to life in Christ, the law of sin and death compared to the grace and the law of Christ. There is another context that must be considered. The Great Circumcision Debate 
We discount how often Paul brings up circumcision and we misunderstand its importance during the first centuries of the Greco-Roman world. This time period spans 332 BC to 395 AD. These years were an incredibly polytheistic time period. In fact, they were so polytheistic that the Jewish idea of monotheism was actually considered atheism at the time. One god was just not enough to make up a full religion. In Christian Atheism and the Peace of the Roman Empire, Church History, Volume 42, William Schodel tells us, To be an atheist was to deny the traditional state gods. Accusations of this specific form of atheism were launched at Christians during the reign of Domitian, although the vitriol founded its roots much earlier. It was the denial of the many Roman gods that placed Christians in a position to be persecuted, and along with the Roman hatred of a monotheistic religion came a hatred of its laws. According to Robert G. Hall, in Epispasm, Circumcision in Reverse, from the Circumcision Reference Library, August 1992, and I quote, For centuries, Jewish boys have regularly been circumcised when they are eight days old. Genesis 17.12. An unusual challenge to circumcision developed, however, in the Hellenistic period, after about 133 BCE. Hellenistic and Roman societies widely practiced public nakedness, but they abhorred bearing the tip of the penis, called the glands. To expose the glands was considered vulgarly humorous, indecent, or both. This combination of attitudes could be, and often was, devastating for circumcised Jews. Enjoying oneself in a Greek gymnasium or Roman bath where nudity was de rigueur was a popular and stylish pastime. Here, politics was discussed and business deals concluded. Athletic contests and exhibitions were also conducted in the nude. Participation in athletics was often a prerequisite for social advancement. Yet, a circumcised penis effectively precluded this participation, end quote. So great was the detestation of circumcision by the Greco-Roman society that many Jews refrained from circumcising their sons or underwent a procedure to try to undo the circumcision. Circumcised males were considered brutes, immoral, ungodly, mindless, and depraved. This resulted in stigmatization and eventually persecution. But of course, the completely naked Romans were very moral, as long as a tiny piece of skin covered their glands. In the midst of this Roman view of circumcision, there existed rabbis who were adamant that circumcision continue, so much so that they tied salvation and faith to this one physical attribute. To both the Romans and the legalistic Jews, circumcision in itself represented the decency, morality, and even salvation of the individual. The state of one's male genitalia was dictating quite a lot about that man's character and beliefs. Paul stands in the middle of all of this chaos. In Acts 15, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, and others put circumcision in its proper place. It is an act of obedience to God, but it is not salvation. Just as Abraham was circumcised after he began following Yahweh, so those coming into the faith would eventually learn this as a part of their walk with God. They instead define three to four beginning principles for the new believer to immediately adopt. Acts fifteen nineteen through 21 states, and I quote, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. End quote. 
I'll never forget having coffee with a pastor I worked for and questioning him about Acts 15.21. The clear meaning of this verse is that these early church leaders will write to the churches and tell their new congregants to abstain from idol sacrifice rituals, from sexual immorality, and from unclean meat and from blood. And then new converts will learn the rest as they go to the synagogue and hear more of Moses' teachings. The pastor told me that Acts 15.21 wasn't a verse in the Bible. I protested, sincerely, thinking maybe he hadn't read it. The debate in Acts ends with Paul and Barnabas and the like, agreeing that new believers would learn the rest of the Torah when they went, on Sabbath, to synagogue. But this pastor said it couldn't possibly be there. It couldn't be true that the synagogues would be relied upon, and definitely not true that they were supposed to be learning the laws of Moses. Ah, well... How strange and strained it must be to hang so desperately to doctrines that proceeded from a compromised, often corrupted Catholic Church tradition, rather than those of the Church found in Scripture. Should you feel this verse doesn't exist, grab your Bible and take a peek. It won't take you long. Nevertheless, here in Acts, we see great import placed on circumcision. And knowing the cultural context, it is no wonder circumcision is a focal point of debate. Circumcision was central to identifying the monotheist, then known as atheist, in Greco-Roman culture. With those glasses properly wiped and placed squarely before our logic, we can have sympathy for the adamant rabbis and teachers who demanded circumcision take place. They were wrong, but they were wrong for very good reasons. It is clear Paul believed that circumcision was not salvation, and yet it had a purpose. In Acts 16, Paul circumcises Timothy because they were going to preach to Jews, who were well aware that Timothy's father was Greek. This circumcision was an act of obedience, to be in alignment with the laws of Scripture so that Timothy could have good standing among the Jews. If Paul did not believe in circumcision, he would likely have preached a message about its abolition to the Jews and Gentiles alike. But this is not the message he preaches, nor the action he takes. He simply straightens out the debate of the day. Circumcision is not salvation. It is another act of obedience, only meaningful if the life of the circumcised is submitted to Yeshua out of love for him. From Galatians 5, 1-6, I quote, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul is distressed that the Galatians have been giving in to what he calls the circumcision party. In Galatians 2 verse 12, Peter and Barnabas had been preaching and hanging out with the Gentiles until the circumcision party came along, and then they quickly abandoned their new friends. Hypocrisy taking root, Paul rebukes them heartily, reminding them that the idea of circumcision for salvation can only lead to a belief system where you must follow the whole law in order to receive salvation. Yet it must be love of Christ that comes first and inspires not a fleshly following of the law, but one of the Spirit of Yeshua. The belief that circumcision was the key to heaven was detrimental to the ministry of Peter and Barnabas and any others who would have adopted it. What a mess was happening at the time of Paul, and all over, not just in Jerusalem, but in Galatia as well. 
In this framework, if you read through Galatians, you will understand the different gospel in in chapter 1, verse 6, and those who trouble you in chapter 1, verse 7. You will begin to put the pieces together as to why Paul chronicles his history as a Pharisee, reminding them that he himself was zealous for the traditions of my father in verse 14. Paul is desperate to convince them that salvation is by faith in Yeshua alone, not the removal of a tiny piece of foreskin. The rest of Galatians dives into this difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit, the difference between works-based salvation and grace-based salvation. He both begins and concludes with the circumcision party and its erroneous teachings. Galatians reads like a well-written essay. He tells you at the beginning what it is about, expounds upon the concept, and concludes where he began. Galatians is about circumcision. Consider Galatians six twelve through 15 I quote, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, you must pardon me for my crudeness here, but can't you see why Paul is frustrated? Between the Romans judging based on penile features and the circumcision party judging based on penile features, Paul is dealing with a competition between two groups unduly obsessed with penises. Likely never in history have penises been compared more often. Paul calls it boasting in the flesh. You may call it what you will. Whatever the correct terminology, this competition was frustrating indeed, and for those teaching that penis appearance had replaced the cross of Christ for salvation, Paul has some heavy rebukes. Hopefully, Galatians reads like an entirely different book to you now, making more sense in the light of Scripture. All right, you guys, I'm not done with my final chapter, but it is time for me to stop. And so we will finish up next week, and I will also kind of just review with you what we discussed and what we learned Um I hope you're enjoying this and that this is helping you understand my perspective on Paul and why we have to be so careful as we read Paul. We're going to get into even more nitty gritty detail with the next section of this chapter. I hope you all are blessed this week and uh, I will be back here next time.